0: Let's dive right in this morning as we continue our overview and wrap up of the book of Romans today in chapter 14 verses 12 all the way Lord willing through 15 7 conduct of eager obligation but before we do let us put our minds back on track with what is a Ever-expanding introduction and review, Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, but instead that he is eagerly obliged to the gospel. A gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, the wrath of God revealed against men, righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation, ransoming back, buying back His people. Purchasing our lives with the precious lifeblood of Christ so that he might be both just and the justifier. Something truly supernatural. For Abraham believed God, but that belief was reckoned to him as something more. It was reckoned to him as the very righteousness of God himself, the power of God on display, faith credited For God righteousness. Having been justified through the gift of faith. The people of God rejoice. Literally we boast in the hope of God. For we were dead. Born in the image of our father Adam. From dust we came. And to dust we would return. But in Christ we live. Because in Christ we died. We know our identity. And it is not simply someone who prayed a prayer by rote. We know our identity that by the baptism of the Holy Spirit we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we have risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life. In a profound identity it is, life from death, God himself calling into existence that which previously did not exist. And all of this directly by the power of the Holy Spirit because it sure isn't going to be by the power of the decision of men. Men are enslaved to their own being. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not simply that they won't please God. It's not that they just don't want to please God. Although both of those things are true, they cannot do it. But by the power of the Spirit... According to chapter 8, verse 9, the saints have been given a new being. For you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and therefore we can say the most audacious thing in all of Scripture that all things work for good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. Are you called by God? Do you love God? If so, then friend, you have never had a bad day. This call is not according to any old purpose. It is not random. It is not arbitrary. Instead, this call that is faith being reckoned as righteousness is according to the very purpose of God himself for scripture teaches us that salvation belongs to our lord so then it depends not on human will or exertion but upon god who has mercy romans 9:16 friends the good news of the gospel is this that mercy and compassion are not opposed to god's justice but that mercy and compassion are part and partial to God's justice to the extent that if there is no mercy and no compassion in justice, then it is not the justice of God. Our God will not be accused, even though fallen men and angels would love to. Instead, He will be glorified, both for his wrath and certainly for his mercy. For concerning the glory of God and salvation, Paul's heart breaks for the lost. His position is not one of indifference, as we will continue to see today, even in the midst of the sanctification of the church. His heart is not one of indifference. It breaks for the loss. Yes, God will have mercy on whom He wills. He will have compassion on whom He wills. And He will harden whom He wills. But the character of the people of God modeled after the character of Christ is a heart that breaks over the lostness of men. For his own brothers, knowing so much about the promise of God to them, yet lacking the most important component, the intimacy of salvation with their Creator and Savior, they instead established a system, slapped a sticker on it and called it the law. A system that was, in spite of all of their wisdom, insufficient. To bring salvation for God's glory is not in man's law, Instead, God's glory is in the word of faith. It is near you, the Spirit says. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. For if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For with the mouth one, or with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone... Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans chapter ten, verse thirteen. And knowing this truth and holding fast to it with the the knowledge that all things work for good in one hand, for those who are called according to his purpose and love him, and the knowledge that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, grasp firmly in the other, we are bold in our evangelism. We understand the difference between means and cause. That we are the means, but Christ is the cause. And we are not downtrodden about simply being the means. We're just happy to get a front row seat. The means are beautiful. Paul writes, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news. Will all believe? No. Unfortunately, they won't. Because faith comes through hearing and not from hearing me and you, but faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. For those who are the means of the gospel but not the cause of salvation, for us, success is defined not necessarily as people accepting the good news, though we pray they do in droves. Instead, success for the means is being the means. Success for the means is the faithful proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we will trust God himself to produce the effect so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ Romans 10:17 Well if this faith comes through the word of Christ what about Israel to whom so many promises over so many millennium were made what about them Christ is faithful. He has not abandoned his people, Israel. And you don't have to worry about him abandoning his people amongst the Gentiles. He has not abandoned his people, Israel. Instead, a partial hardening in the wisdom of God has come upon Israel for a period of time until the fullness of the Gentiles, that means me and you, have been grafted in. The result of that means salvation for us and responsibility for us, for the Gentile church suffering. Enduring to the end, even as our choir master led us in praise this morning, the Gentile church being willing to endure suffering to the end is the very catalyst that leads to the jealousy of the Jew when Jesus Christ splits the eastern sky and they look on Him whom they pierced. And in that day, Jew and Gentile together will be saved. Church, we are the body of that is ordained to provoke to jealousy. Paul is not just using imagery when he calls us the living sacrifice. Friends, you are the miracle that God is doing. He's not simply moving your name from one list to the other. He is creating life where there was no life. He is creating out of nothing sentient beings. The new creation that is aware and living and feeling and desiring of the things of the kingdom. In God's perfect design as He is creating this life, we are not all the same. We all share in the same grace. But He is making the new creation no more identical to each other than He made you identical to each other in your flesh. Instead, in His perfect plan and foreknowledge, you are being equipped for the role that you were designed for. So let us go forward and fulfill our role and be what God called us to be. Let love be genuine without pretending. Don't don't try to pretend to be something in love you're not. Let love be genuine. Don't pretend. Let it be agape. Love with great intention of the will, desiring and then doing the best for your God, your brother, your sister, even your enemy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Be subject to the governing authorities that God ordains. Owe oh, nothing except love, for God has expectations for his people God doesn't do His handiwork to create knickknacks to set on a shelf. He has expectations, purpose, and plan for what He will use them to accomplish. God has expectations for His new creations, both for the strong and the weak among us. For the strong, we are told, do not despise the weak. Instead, bring them along. Bring them from a place of weakness to a place of strength. Conversely, for the weak, Paul says, do not pass judgment on the strong, for quite frankly, you're in no position to do so. But instead, understand something. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's time to wake from sleep. It's time to snap out of the American dream form of Christianity. It's time to awake from sleep and realize that if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Why? Because we are the Lord's. And each one of us, me and you, will give an account of himself to God. And so today, I pray that when you and I give that account, it will be couched in a very specific type of obligation. Continuing this morning in Romans chapter 14, it's a big hunk, but let's bite off verse 12 through 19. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Scripture tells us much. It tells us more than I know. I'm constantly finding new things in it. (laughs) Scripture tells us much. But particularly as it comes to application, it doesn't tell us everything. Instead, we have been given the spirit and the mind of Christ. When it comes to things that Scripture leaves up to opinion, there are positions in the kingdom to decide. So Paul begins in verse 13 and says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul begins with a command, a do and a do not. Do not pass judgment. Literally, do not divide. Do not pass judgment. Do not become the decider, the arbiter between good and evil. But instead, do something else. Do decide never to place a stumbling block in front of your brother or be a hindrance to them. Now, before we get started in earnest, I want you to take note of something this morning. The concept here in chapter 14, verse 13 of passing judgment and making a decision are not two separate concepts. Passing judgment, do not pass judgment, do decide to not put a stumbling block or be a hindrance. Passing judgment and making a decision are not two separate concepts. Not one where by which we judge something and reject it and another by which we make a decision and accept it. Instead, it is one concept that is being spoken of with two different applications, one which is good and one which is bad. So when we're talking about passing judgment and deciding, we're really talking about the same thing. The difference is is how you apply it. You see, both come from the same root word. When you read it in English, it looks like two separate words. In the Greek, it's krino. The definition of krino is to separate, to cut, to divide particularly between good and evil to judge to make a decision between what is right and what is wrong if you wanted to translate chapter 15 verse or chapter 14 verse 13 more literally or at least more consistently it would read like this no longer judge one another but rather judge not to place a stumbling block or a hindrance before a brother in other words what paul is saying Indeed, judge, but make sure you judge right and not judge wrong. Or as Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Man, when you hear Christians talk about judging, and i just be honest with you, Mark, when somebody said, it feels a little judgy to me, once they put the Y behind it, it's like chewing on a piece of aluminum foil to me. Have you ever been chewing on a stick of gum and some of the wrapper got stuck to the back and it hits a filling? It's just like that. Friends, let me tell you something. If we can't make judgment in the wisdom of Christ, we are paralyzed and hopeless to affect any salvation in this world. Jesus says, Judge. Just make sure you judge right. Don't judge by appearances. But judge with right judgment. So here's the deal. In matters of opinion, Paul says, do not judge your brother. Rather, judge like this. Judge yourself as to how you relate to your brother. And once you have, then take that judgment and apply it. Verses 14 through 15. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Okay, Paul says, don't judge poorly. Don't judge your brother as though you're the arbiter for him between right and wrong. That's God's job, not yours. However, judge rightly. Judge the way that you relate to your brother in matters of opinion. And I do want to point that out. We're not talking about, thus saith the Lord here. We're not talking about whether or not your brother thinks it's okay to murder or not. Instead, we're talking about things like holidays and food and drink and what in the grand scope of the kingdom would be considered to be trivial things in and of themselves, apply the judgment that you make. And here's where Paul starts with a statement of the absolute truth. No food is unclean. Yea, bacon. Better yet, Man, there is <laughs> there is one little shack in, in um, Bayou Du Large, Louisiana, and another somewhat of a shack in Washington, D.C., that have the best broiled oysters I've ever eaten in my life. Yay, broiled oysters. Friend, no food is unclean in and of itself. Go have at it. But I have you note, Paul qualifies this truth. No food is unclean in itself. So the absolute nature of the doctrine is, man, food is food. And that's what God gave it to you for. But no food is unclean in and of itself. The reality, though, is, is there is context here. There is more to be considered when it comes to food, for example, or revering one day over another, or whatever opinion matter that you may hold up, there is more to be considered than just the object. There's more to be considered than just the BLT or the broiled oysters on the plate. You must consider the convictions of our brothers and sisters, whether weak or strong. And at this point, you might kind of bristle up a little here because I know my flesh does and say, well, feelings aren't facts and thoughts aren't truth. And I think that that is a particularly poignant statement in the current culture in which we live. That wants you to believe that feelings are facts and that thoughts are truth. So people talk about speaking their truth. I think that's worse than judgy. Okay. Okay. The culture is opposed to the kingdom. It is using thoughts and feelings, subjective things, as a means to attack attack objective truth. It is using these things to come against the plain stated truth, righteousness, and holiness of God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and his kingdom. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that have had their debt propitiated, have been bought with the blood of Christ, according to the purpose of God, to fulfill a very specific role in the kingdom that God has ordained they fulfill. When we're talking about thoughts and feelings as it regards opinions that aren't covered in Scripture, that are held by fellow brothers and sisters, we deal with that, guess what, in a very different way than the way we deal with the lies of an enemy that is attacking the kingdom of God. It's not the same thing. And I think that ought to be pretty self-evident. It's not the same thing. Respecting the convictions of the way that someone that maybe is weaker than you feels about whether or not they ought to eat shellfish or not is not the same thing as going along with the delusion that according to Romans chapter 1 is the direct result of the willful abandonment of God of a guy saying because I feel like it I am actually a woman. That is not the same thing. One is an attack against the truth of God. The other is the people of God being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. None of us have arrived yet, and we're all trying to land at the same place, which is glorification. These are not the same thing. So, feelings aren't facts, and thoughts aren't truth. But, in this case, amongst the brotherhood, they are integral to the truth. How is it that feelings and thoughts are integral to the truth? Because of Romans chapter 14 verse 23. Skip down the page if you would. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Man, we're talking about something a lot bigger than food and drink and holidays. We're talking about the way these things relate back to something that is of critical importance because these are trivial things. We're talking about the way they relate back to faith. And anything that is not done in the fullness of faith, Paul says, is sin. So what do we do? What you do is love your brother agape affectionate regard with the full intention of bringing about the best good in that which is love. Not the best good for you, but the best good for the object. Friends, one of the critical differences, man, and and I will harp on this till the day I die, one of the critical differences between phileo and agape is at the end of the day, phileo uses the beloved as a means to pleasure the lover. And agape uses the character of the lover to bring good things to the beloved. Both can be wonderful in sanctification, but one is much higher than the other. Look, what you eat, what you drink, what days you celebrate is up to your will. Man, you are free in Christ. But choosing freedom at the expense of your brother is not intentional love. It is instead intentional selfishness and has no part in agape love. Love is more critical than food. Therefore, understanding that, there is a greater truth that must be embraced. And everybody wants to read this section of Romans and they get all caught up in the And can I do this or can I do it? Man, there is a truth that is to be embraced. The kingdom of God, according to verse seventeen, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is not, and this is going to be this. This statement sounds completely self contradictory, but hang with me. The kingdom of God is not defined in finite things. Now, Rock, a definition is supposed to be finite. But the kingdom of God is not of this world. And it is not defined by finite things. Instead, the kingdom is defined in infinite things the infinite things of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not kosher meals and observed holidays. Instead, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians chapter 2, 22 through 23. The hope of the kingdom is not in the doing, it's not in the eating, it's not in the drinking, it's not in the observing. Instead, hope of the kingdom is in what we are filled with that motivates the doing. God's not creating a list. He's creating living sentient beings that think and feel and desire and out of that desire act according to to the desires of the kingdom. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Chapter 15, verse 13. And if that truth is to be embraced, and it is, then we have to come to terms and that's a kinetic truth. <laughs> that's a truth in which God is producing something, and the thing he's producing is a being, a living being. Therefore, that truth demands that there be a character embodied, that it produces in us the very thing that God intended it to produce. In chapter 14, verse 20 through 23. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is, his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I'll give you the, the quick and dirty outline on the embodiments of the character of the Christian out of Romans chapter 14 verses 20 through 23. The first thing you get once again is a command. Paul has a tendency to follow these kind of repetitive outlines the first thing you get is a command this time it's not a negative and a positive it's just a negative do not do not destroy the work of God for food or for drink or for holidays or for anything else trivial do not destroy the work of God for food and then he moves on having said this because everybody wants you, you know. The Bible is a complex book written about a complex topic. We are little children trying to understand it. And he speaks to us that way. Everybody wants you to fall firmly in, don't offend your brother, and, and form a law. Or be free and offend your brother and Paul just won't let you do it. He restates the doctrine. All food is clean. This isn't about food. The standard of righteousness for those free in Christ is simply this, that it is wrong to make another stumble. It is right to abstain on behalf of your brother's weakness. Pretty straightforward. At this point in time, people say, well, if the doctrine is clear, and it is, I mean, Paul states it twice here in just a couple of verses, if the doctrine is clear that all food is clean, then why not just start there? And what we're really saying is if all food is clean, why not just tell the weak the truth and tell them to get over it and stop being weak? Well, there's actually some merit in that, but not with the attitude with which it would be espoused in that manner. Because when you say, well, if all food is clean, let's just start with the doctrine and tell the weak to get over it. It does not reflect the embodiment of priority in Christian character. Christ's character comes with a certain priority, even amongst truth in the midst of this not yet glorified world. Man, you could quote all sorts of examples. We don't have time. I swore I was going to keep this moving this morning. And you can look at Jesus speaking to John the Baptist and John going, man, it will be me baptizing you. He says, yeah, but for righteousness' sake. You can look at him paying taxes to Caesar. Look at Peter going, hey, Pete, tell me something, buddy. Does uh, the king's son pay the taxes or the subjects pay the taxes? Well, the king's son paid the taxes. Yeah, anyway, pay him. Let him not speak ill of us. There is priority in Christian character. Friends, while Christ bought us our freedom, I want you to understand this morning that we are not primarily free. Christ bought us our freedom. But he did not free us unto our own devices. Instead, we were freed unto enslavement. In Romans chapter 6 verse 17 through 19, just in case you don't, you know, this is another one of those places where people want to grab one extreme or the other. Man, we're free. Amen. We're free. We're slaves. Amen. We're slaves. Well, if you're slaves, you can't be free, and if you're free, you can't be slaves. You can if it's God's slavery. God has a slavery that's not like man's slavery. But friends, let me tell you something. You are free if you are his and you are enslaved. Paul says this in Romans 6:17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves of impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You say, Pastor, what do you mean when you say that you are free and you are enslaved because God has an enslavement that is like no other enslavement known among the created? What I mean is verse 17. Thanks be to God, you who were once slaves to sin. Okay, got it. We were once slaves to sin. Skip down the page. Verse 18, have been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Okay, you were slaves to sin. Christ set you free. And then having set you free, you're telling me what he did over here was enslave me again. This time to righteousness, which certainly has better results, no doubt about it, but I'm still a slave. How is that freedom? Here's how it's freedom. It's the clause that sets in the middle. You were enslaved in this manner and have become obedient to this slavery, not against your will, but by it. You became obedient from the heart. Because what God is creating is not people on a list. It's sentient beings that feel and think and desire and want. And they want to. And yes, they were once enslaved to sin by their will, but they have been set free that they may be enslaved to righteousness by their will. They've become obedient. Not at the tip of the whip, but from the heart. Slavery is not against the will of men, but according to their will. Whether lost or saved, And having been saved, having been born again, we act out of that will, the will of the new creation. Guys, the conclusion is this while freedom is a God given right in Jesus Christ, it is not the end all be all standard of Christian character. Man, God gave it to you, it's yours. But man, it does not set on the top of the food chain. While freedom is a God-given right in Christ, it is not the standard of Christian character. Instead, love is the standard of Christian character. And not fuzzy-wuzzy phileo love that is so fickle because what it's really concerned about is the way that the lover feels about the beloved, but agape love. That with great intention of the will, Is willing to sacrifice even itself in order to bring about the best good for the beloved. Romans chapter 4, verse 14 through 15. I, or 14, verse 14 through 15, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Friends, freedom is not the end all, be all of the kingdom, though you absolutely have it. Use your freedom to show that Christ gave you a new character. Use your freedom. Hey, let me tell you something, friend. If you can't deny and abstain, you're not free. You know, when they hold elections in North Korea, there's a gigantic, you don't even want to know, you might just disappear for what happens if you don't go vote. You know, they have them every now and then. They have elections in North Korea. There's one name on the ballot. But the Kims, they're not content to simply have 100% of the turnout. They want 100% turnout with 100% of the turnout. Friends, if you can't abstain, you're not free. If you can't say, I'm not going to vote, then you're not free to vote. You're compelled. Say, man, I'm free in Christ. Yeah, you are. The weaker holding me back sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. But if that becomes an insurmountable problem for you, then friend. At the very least, you got your sanctification upside down. The character of the Christian is not defined by freedom. The character of the Christian is defined by love. We have an obligation to it. Now, this is where it starts getting gritty. We are obliged. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Greek, you can even say indebted. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, we who are strong have an obligation. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The reality is that the weak often fail. And Paul has not been shy about that. That's not my opinion. (laughs) I mean, go back and look at the stuff he's saying. Paul's not been shy about that. That's why you don't want to be weak. It's because the weak often fail. And abiding weakness is difficult for the strong. Amen? Amen? It's difficult. And yet, we are obligated, even indebted, Paul says. And we're obligated not simply to tolerate the failings of the week, to grit your teeth and get by. And golly, if there is ever Scripture that preaches at, me, preaches at me, man, this is it. You know, because for a season, you can do that in your flesh. You know, you can... we're obligated not simply to tolerate the failings of the weak instead it says we must bear with them the the, the concept here in the original language is is to carry to support or to to hold up as a matter of fact the word in the Greek is basis and it's where we, we actually don't even translate that where we transliterate that word out of the Greek for our word for basis and basis means The foot or the base, that which holds something up or supports it. The way that this pulpit right now is holding up my Bible and my notes and my glasses. We're to bear with them, we're to uphold them, we're to support them. If you wanted to translate it literally, it would say, We who are strong have an obligation to foot the failings of the weak. You go, man, that doesn't sound very pleasant. It's not pleasant. It's the opposite of pleasant. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Paul says. We who are strong have an obligation to foot the failings of the weak and to what? Not please ourselves. Like, so let's not joke. Let's not kid ourselves. You know, because sometimes you get Christians that are trying to be really, you know, they're strong Christians. They realize that this is a problem for them. They're trying to be really strong Christians. They walk around looking like they're on the version, like the the spiritual version of Prozac. Like they smile at everything. It's all good. Hey, man, it's not... Look, Paul says it's not pleasant. It's not. But that's okay. Like, we need to come, you know, whether we live, we live the Lord, whether we die, we die the Lord. We need to come to terms with this thing that Jesus never said that on this earth it would be pleasant. (laughs) Hey, here's the great deal, man. I don't know how long your chassis is good for, but if I get 80, 80 years out of mine, I think I'm doing pretty good. Men, a man is no fool to give up what he cannot possibly keep to gain that which we cannot possibly lose. I'll give you 80 years of unpleasant for an eternity of glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's not pleasant. No, it's the opposite of pleasant. It's not to please yourself. It's to foot the failings of the weak. And I would have you note that it gets more difficult still. We are told that we are to please them, but not just in any old way. You know, it's, it's, it's easy, at least in the moment, it ends up creating a firestorm, but it's easy in the moment to please people the way they want to be pleased. You see this with kids all the time. You know, please them, give them what they want, pacify them. It raises intolerable brats that we've all been around. It's difficult. You know, you're in the, you're in the aisle at Walmart and you're like, you need to stop pleasing that kid, right? That's not what Paul's talking about. He's, it gets more difficult than just the fact that it's not pleasant for us. The fact of the matter is, is if you're doing this the right way, it's often not pleasant for us and not pleasant for them. Because he specifically says that we are strong, have an obligation to foot the failings of the weak and not please ourselves, But let each of us please his neighbor, what? For his good to build him up. For even if you are loving with agape, you are by great intention doing what is best for an individual. In this case, you are doing what is for His good in order that He may be built up. That is a long way around of defining sanctification, and it's always difficult and it's always painful. The reality is, is if you do what Paul says to do here, if you follow what is inspired by the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a lot of times that the beloved does not appreciate the thing you're doing that's not pleasing for you and is supposed to be for His good. He's not going to be pleased with it either. It's tough. Sanctification is hard. Please your neighbor for his good, even when that's not what he would prefer. You got to ask the question, why are we so obliged? Why? I mean, if it's going to be unpleasant for me, if it's going to be unpleasant for them, why are we obligated to do this? Not just that it would be good, or it would bring about, you know, a better world, society, mutual understanding, a stronger church, better family. We're obligated, Paul says. Why? Because of Christ, guys. Primarily, primarily, you are not obligated to the weak. You are obligated to the weak, but not primarily. You're obligated to Christ. Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself. At 4 there is statement of causality in the Greek. You could replace it with because. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up because Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We are obligated to the weak because, first and foremost, we are obligated to Jesus Christ. What Paul quotes here that was written about him comes from Psalm chapter 69. And in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 9 is where the quote comes from, where it is written, For zeal for your house has consumed me. This particular verse out of Psalms is quoted a number of times about Christ, a couple times in the Gospels. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. If everything that we said in the review today about the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to you, if that is true for you, then the fact of the matter is your reproach, my reproach, our reproach as the sons and daughters of God fell on Christ Himself. It is written in Isaiah 53, verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And not only did our reproach and our iniquity fall on Him, it did not fall on Him while we were showing promise to be the strong children of the kingdom. It fell on him while we were the very definition of weakness. For Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person One would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here is the character of Jesus Christ. Our reproach fell on him, and it fell on him willfully by his own accord at the moment when we were the definition of weakness. That's Christ's character. Man, when you're weak, just worthless, can't pull your own weight, without the Lord and without a hope in the world, then I'll take your reproach. And we, as the children of God, justified by faith, boasting in hope, called according to His purpose, we are being sanctified, we are being made holy, we are being conformed to His image and His character. I mean, this is the way we're This is back in chapter 8, man. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified that He may be the firstborn amongst many brothers. They may be conformed to His image. Therefore, what Christ has done in taking the reproach of the weak upon Himself, of what Christ is currently doing, even taking our reproach right now, Because that is his character and because we are being conformed to that character, we are now obligated, we are indebted, we are bound to imitate that very character to others. Paul said, you do this because Christ did it and is doing it in you. And is doing it. It's not just that he did it for you a singular event. He is currently doing it. He is currently bearing your reproach. He is currently bringing me along in my weakness. And the manner in which he is bringing me along is to make me look like him and his character. Therefore, if that's actually happening to you, you have no choice. You are obligated to do the same thing. Otherwise, it testifies to the fact that it's not happening in you. Which is why, just up the page in Psalm 69, verse 6, we see that character reflected when it says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God. Of Israel. Man, Jesus Christ bought your freedom, but it is not the highest priority of the kingdom. The highest priority of the kingdom is love out of the character and after the manner of Jesus Christ. We are obligated, but just like our enslavement, this is an obligation that is like no other. Romans chapter 12 through 15 records the conduct of the body that is driven by the character of Christ. Not just the the do's and don'ts of what you should do and shouldn't do, but the do's and don'ts as examples of the character of Christ underneath that is driving them. Romans 12 through 15 is the conduct of the body driven by the character of Christ, and that character is therefore holy and other than what we are asked to do is truly a weighty thing where we often forego the pleasures of self in order to bring about the good of the others and the very pleasure of God and yet in the midst of all of this weightiness the obligation that it produces man this goes right back to that slavery that's slavery that's freedom and freedom that's slavery because it's from the heart the obligation that it produces is an obligation of eagerness man paul's talking about our obligation here it's the exact same obligation that he has because it is the same reality of christ into which, whose image we are being conformed that produces this in us, the very same reality is functioning in Paul and producing the same thing in him. And if we go back... Romans chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 there Paul talking about the obligation that he is experiencing because of the gospel now in 14 and 15 talk about the same obligation that we experience in the gospel when Paul talks about it for himself he says that it produces an obligation that is of a very specific type you remember we started this sermon we said man we're all going to give an account of ourselves to God and I pray on the day we give it that account is couched in a very specific specific obligation not just that we are obligated but that we are obligated by such a glorious obligation that it produces in us an eagerness to be obliged i am under obligation paul says chapter 1 verse 14 both to greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish so that i am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And Paul can be eager, even in the midst of a weighty obligation, an otherworldly obligation, that is conforming us, smashing us into a mold that we could never be conformed and smashed into of our own accord. And we can be eager and excited about it, even though it is often unpleasant both for us and others. Because just like God has a slavery that's like no other, He has an obligation that's like no other. Verse 4 of chapter 15, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Friends, we have an obligation that is full of endurance it is full of, and you go, man, endurance, that doesn't sound pleasant. Man, let me tell you what's worse than having to endure. Failing to endure. Man, I remember when I first got out on my own. We got kids every year that are getting out on their own for the first time. I remember when I first got out on my own. Boy, I hated paying bills. Hated it. Man, you sit down and you suck up all your money, man. You work all week. Work all month. You sit down and, man, you start writing checks for rent and for water and gas and insurance. And before you know it, man, it's like, man, I thought when I got out of college I was supposed to not have to eat ramen noodles anymore. If you're in the business that I was in at the time, winters were lean. And if you weren't ready for that the first winter, you found out just how lean they were. And you make bold statements when you're young, like, I don't sell guns, I buy guns. Well, you'll sell them if you need rent. And there's something funny that happens. After you go through that winter, you still don't enjoy paying bills. But you figure out real quick there's something worse than paying bills. And it's not being able to pay the bills. It's way worse. You know what's worse? Than having to endure, failing to endure. Friends, this is an obligation like no other. Is it, Wadey? You better believe it. But it is just full of the kind of hope of God in which Paul said we boast. Man, it's full of endurance and encouragement, full of hope. Harmony with one another and accord with Jesus Christ. <coughs> Guys, we're a mixed bag. Huh? It's just the way God wants it. That's why we said, man, be the one, be the new creation He created you to be. Friend, if we can have harmony if we can be on the same page because of our accord with Jesus Christ? If you can get a sweet little thing like Ashley Banos and Justin Wing on the same page, buddy, that's the Lord's doing. And we can pick a lot of those extremes, man. I love the fact that He's made us that way. I think it's awesome. I love being the island of misfit toys. That's pretty much what the kingdom is. Man, you got fishermen and tax collectors and scholars, Jew and Gentile, Cretans. One end to the other. Every tribe, language, and nation. You got men who thought they were so holy they had never set foot across a Gentile's threshold. You got a thief hanging on a cross. Yes, the obligation is heavy, but it is chalked full of glory endurance and encouragement, hope, harmony, accord with Christ, so that with one voice we may glorify God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, welcoming one another and being welcomed by Christ, and we may indeed fulfill this obligation and do so with eagerness. For our Lord who grants such things, who calls us to his side, who gives us hope, is the very Lord of both endurance and encouragement. And what he calls us to do, he will provide for us to do. Not just in the execution, but with the character and heart that is required to execute it properly. Therefore, because your God is the God of endurance and encouragement, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Lord, you do indeed call to heavy things and you supply with a infinite supply Lord we say that you are the God of both endurance and encouragement not just one or the other in order that we may not simply be obligated that we may be eager in it Lord we pray that you would be glorified Lord and we pray that you would draw even now men women boys and girls Lord we pray that you would draw them to this very gospel of Christ that they may see you that they may that they may repent, that they may confess that you are Lord, Lord, and in faith that they may be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.